0: Submitted.
1: <clears throat> we'll hear argument next to number 01705, Joanne Barnhart versus Peabody Coal Company in related case. Just a minute, yeah. <clears throat> Ms. McDowell.
2: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court: the COLAC states that the Commissioner of Social Security shall, before October 1st, 1993, assign each beneficiary to a signatory coal operator or related person that remains in business. That provision, understood in light of this Court's precedence, establishes a deadline that is mandatory but not jurisdictional. It does not deprive the Commissioner of the power or the obligation to complete the assignments after that date if necessary. That understanding comports with the text and structure of the Coal Act, as well as with one of its central purposes, that to the maximum extent possible each coal retiree's benefits um, would be paid for by a coal operator that actually employed that miner or a related person. But
3: that's not true. Uh, in, in fact, uh, if later researches show that somebody should have been assigned somewhere else, uh, uh, you, do, you don't shift the beneficiaries. Uh, it, it, it isn't the case that, uh, uh, that this is designed to assure a perfect system in which uh, somebody who is responsible, uh, no matter that a mistake was made in the past, in the future, that person will be reassigned the way he should be?
2: Well, the statute does provide for administrative review of assignments so that uh, a coal operator who was assigned a minor in error could challenge that before the Commissioner. And uh, if the Commissioner found that the assignment was erroneous, the minor could be assigned to a, a more appropriate coal operator. In addition, the regulations promulgated by the commissioner for the administrative review process allowed the commissioner herself to reopen an assignment if she found that it had been erroneous within a one-year period.
1: What happens to someone who wasn't assigned before October 1st? Uh, they're, They're not just left out in the cold, are they?
2: No, Congress did provide a fallback position uh, for all of those who weren't assigned by October 1st or at at any time because uh, they had no uh, former employer or related person who remained in business, and that is that they will be treated as part of the unassigned beneficiary pool. The benefits for those miners are paid um, uh, from an appropriation from the AML fund, the fund originally created to ameliorate the problems of um, abandoned mines, and uh, if that fund proves insufficient, uh, the funds will come from a a premium imposed on all of the co-operators to whom beneficiaries have been assigned. Ms. McDowell, there there is a section,
0: uh, 9704F2B, that deals with annual adjustment of unassigned premiums. And it says that if there's an assigned minor and the Operator goes out of business in any given year, then that assigned minor becomes part of the pool. And it doesn't matter really whether the initial assignment was before the October 1 deadline or not. They just go into the pool in time. And that seems to work somewhat against your interpretation.
2: I think the situation addressed in that provision is quite different. Uh, even assuming that it unequivocally establishes that the Commissioner couldn't reassign somebody after a company went into bankruptcy. Uh, But assignments at the outset of the process, the sorts of assignments that we're concerned with here are quite different from an assignment after bankruptcy that could occur 20, 30, or 40 years down the road. And Congress may well have been interested only in achieving a correct initial assignment at the outset and uh, not with um, um, continuing to readjust the assignments um, Well, it,
0: much it does later. show at least that much that Congress didn't want to continue perpetually to adjust these things for the...
2: Yes, that's correct. But the fact that the uh, that Congress directed that the... Um, applicable percentage for calculating the assigned beneficiary premium shall be adjusted in certain circumstances doesn't suggest to us that Congress uh, would not have permitted it to be adjust in other, adjusted in other circumstances as well that uh, Congress may not have explicitly contemplated at the time that the Coal Act was enacted. One of those was the fact well, that... Uh, is it possible
0: that that deadline was some kind of political compromise, so to speak, at the time it was passed And. Operators
2: thought, well, that's it, you know, after that deadline, it's well, there's, fixed. There's no indication in the text or legislative history that that was contemplated. And indeed, since Congress was legislating in light of this Court's opinions in Pierce County and Montalvo-Murillo, um, the provision could not readily be understood as providing coal operators with that sort of assurance. In addition... Well, you, uh,
1: you say Congress is legislating in light of our decision in Pierce County. Uh, You're you're just uh, applying the general presumption that Congress does that. Certainly, is there any indication here that Congress was legislating in light of Pierce County?
2: Congress didn't explicitly say so, no, but uh, as uh, we have cited a number of statutes in our briefs uh, that make clear that when Congress wants to terminate an agency's authority to make decisions at a particular point, Congress knows how to say so explicitly, and it has done so. Um, in those situations, it has not done so here. Well this, we, is, uh, well,
1: this is quite different than Pierce County, though, at least certainly on its facts. Uh, there you had a provision that the, you're supposed to ferret out some sort of uh, misappropriations and uh, saying that the inspector general, whoever it was, was supposed to do it in four months. That's simply a message to the agency to get going. And we, I think we said quite properly that didn't mean that you couldn't ferret out this sort of thing after the four months. But this thing has, has uh, somewhat different ramifications,
2: I think. Well, I think it's clear that Congress uh, imposed deadlines, not only this deadline, but other deadlines in the statute, because it wanted to get the new funding mechanism established by the Coal Act into place. Uh, Congress wanted the assignments to be made promptly so that the combined fund could then send bills for premiums to assigned operators, but it wasn't essential to that scheme that every last assignment was made by October 1st. And there's no indication that Congress uh, adopted the deadline in order to provide any sort of certainty to co-operators. Um, to paraphrase the Court's decision in um, um, James Daniel Good, it would seem somewhat curious that a deadline that was intended to expedite the collection of premiums by the combined fund could be construed to prevent the combined fund in some circumstances from collecting premiums at all. And that is the effect of what is proposed. Is there responded. any
4: limiting principle to your interpretation? I mean, can this go on forever and ever?
2: Well, the statute doesn't itself impose a limit on the Commissioner's authority. However, as a practical matter, uh, the Commissioner has not made initial assignments for more than five years now and has no intent to recommence them. Uh, Obviously, Congress can cut off uh, the authority to do this at at any particular time uh, by denying an appropriation for the process or by doing it explicitly. Would you tell us what
5: percentage of the assignments were made after the deadline and, and how long after the deadline was the the most recent assignment?
2: Uh, yes, to answer your last question first, the, um, the last one was made in 1997. Uh, Congress made uh, a total of uh, approximately, or rather the Commissioner made a, a total of approximately 40,000 assignments before the deadline, in addition to another 15,000 approximately assignments that the coal operators had agreed to. After the deadline, the Commissioner made... Uh, Uh, 10,000 more assignments, a quarter of those were made in October 1993 um, or a handful in February 1994. The rest were made primarily in 1995 and 1996 and a few more, about 55, in 1997. And the process has been completed. um. When there is a reassignment
6: or taking somebody out of the unassigned pool and uh, attributing that person to an operator. Does the operator who has now gotten the assignment have to pay interest for the period from October 93 on, or is it just that you pay now the bill that we would have sent you if we had charged you in 93?
2: The latter. There's no interest charge. So to an extent, the, the, the operator benefits by having the use of the money during the period before the imposed.
6: What about the argument that the Social Security Administration stood before Congress and said, we can make this date, then the uh, operators who might be saddled with additional responsibility could breathe easily and say, well, we don't have to set up any reserve for the assignment of more operators to us.
2: Well, in fact, Your Honor, the Commissioner didn't say we will make the deadline. The Commissioner did express optimism in September of 1993 that the deadline could be complied with.
6: Uh, I thought there were quotations in the record that had an official from the Social Security Administration telling Congress we are going to do it. It was more than it's, it's a hope. I, I don't have that. Im- I think it if- could
2: have been only an expression of hope in, in September 1993. And then the operators would have received, in many cases, and, and these respondents certainly did, assignments of additional beneficiaries uh, during October 1993. So that should have put them on notice to make inquiries as to pre- precisely when the uh, assignment had been made. I think a particularly te- more telling and, and earlier statement from a, an acting commissioner came in February 1993. Uh, when the acting commissioner was testifying before a House Appropriations Subcommittee, um, he said at that point that it did not appear that the assignments could be completed by the deadline. Um, one member of Congress asked, well, what is the, the crucial date then? When is it that beneficiaries will lose benefits if the assignments aren't made? Uh, and the acting commissioner went on to explain that, well, because there was um, a $70 million transfer coming into the combined fund on October 1, 1993 from the um, United Mine Workers 1950 pension fund, there would be money uh, in the combined fund for some time to pay benefits and that the assignments could be done on a rolling basis to bring money into the fund. So it was clearly understood at that point that there was no jurisdictional cut off of the time to make assignments um, contemplated by the statute.
3: Ms. McDowell, what do you do with the provision uh, of 9704A3D, which makes an assigned operator's uh, unassigned beneficiaries' premium equal to the operator's applicable percentage, which is defined as its percentage of total assigned beneficiaries, Determined on the basis of assignments as of October 1, 1993.
2: Well, the statute then goes on to provide for adjustments in years after 1993 for uh, two circumstances: when a change has been made as a result of the administrative review process, and when a change has been made as a result of um, uh, coal operators going out of business. Right, but, the fact but, that Congress
3: does not make a third exception—that is, a change is made as a result of the. The finding of additional uh, assigned beneficiaries under the under the commissioner's ability to to find it after October 1.
2: That's correct, Your Honor. But uh, the fact that Congress said that uh, these adjustments shall be made doesn't suggest that Congress did not intend to permit um, other appropriate adjustments to be made as well. What
3: does suggest that is the language determined on the basis of assignments as of October 1, 1993, and then there's no provision for elsewhere. That wouldn't enable you to uh, to make the other adjustment.
2: Well, Congress was obviously contemplating at the point that it enacted the statute that the deadline would be made um, satisfied. So it's it's therefore somewhat understandable that Congress didn't uh, discuss all the permutations of what would happen if if the deadline was in fact not satisfied. Um, and. An additional point is even if one assumed that the unassigned beneficiary premium, the applicable percentage used to calculate it, had to remain fixed as of October 1, 1993, that doesn't really address the Commissioner's uh, assignment authority after that date. And it is not essential to the statute. No, it isn't essential. It has
4: to because then you'd be paying more than your share. You'd be paying based on the assumption that you only had uh, uh, X number, of uh, permanent beneficiaries, but then you're, uh, you'd be paying that premium. But then you have additional beneficiaries that you must take care of on their own account because they're assigned to you. So you, so you are hurt if you can't if you can't change the formula.
2: Well, I'm not sure that it would significantly change the uh, the percentage of the whole that um, uh, the operator would be required to pay for. But in any event, um, um, in practice, the um, combined fund has gone back. Um, and taken subsequent assignments just like uh, subsequent reassignments into account in calculating the uh, applicable percentage. And the statutory scheme has worked quite satisfactorily in that respect.
5: Would you clarify one thing for me? Uh, I don't know whether the the fallback position to finance the unassigned uh, benefits for the unassigned minors, there are two, some money comes out of the first pension fund. Later it comes out of a government fund. And then there's the third possibility that that money may run out and the miners will be assessed for the payment uh, for the unassigned, the uh, companies will be assessed for the payments for the unassigned <laughs> miners. Now, what is the government's position with respect to a company that, say, had nobody assigned prior to the October date, but after the October date, say, 500 miners were assigned? Now, as, as I read the statute, that would mean the, that company would have no responsibility to contribute to the uh, payments for the unassigned minors. Am I right about that or would you adjust it based on post-October uh, assignments?
2: I'm not aware of any company in that situation, but I think it would be adjusted for post-October assignments. Despite the I mean.
5: language of the statute that Justice Scalia referred to?
2: Yes, Your Honor. We think it's flexible enough to uh, allow those additional adjustments to be taken. When do you office. do
7: the adjusting? In the I, I gather that's what you're doing. Uh, when do you actually make the adjustments?
2: That's uh, a task that's left to the combined fund to do. It's not an adjustment that the um, Commissioner herself made. Yeah,
7: but it, but is, is the percentage recalculated as of the beginning of, of each uh, uh, kind of fiscal year uh, following the, the initial October 1 date? Or are in the middle of a company's, uh, uh, in, in the middle of a year running from October 1, are uh, they suddenly socked with, uh, with, uh, or are at least liable to be socked, with an assignment for which they had no reason to plan on October 1?
2: Um, you know, I think uh, the Commissioner typically made uh, one round of assignments a year during Annually. the time when she was making Annually. the additional assignments, sometimes two rounds.
7: And I is believe. that made in, in advance of October 1 each year to commence on October 1, or be effective as of October 1 each year?
2: Yes. Okay. I still
7: don't see
3: your basis for doing it. I mean, you say it's flexible enough, but you're confronted with language that says it will be determined on the basis of assignments as of October 1, 1993. I mean, it, it, there it is. It says it in cold, hard language. There is no, no exception elsewhere to do what you say there's flexibility to do. Where do you get the flexibility from?
2: Well, Congress didn't foreclose additional um, adjustments to the assigned beneficiary premium in addition to those specified in the statute. What do you mean it didn't
3: foreclose? Yes, it did. It said determined on the basis of assignments as of October 1, 1990. What what more does it have to say?
2: Well, then, if you will turn to the next subsection of the statute, it provides for adjustments for plan years after 1993.
3: Exactly. That that makes it even clearer that except for those expressed exceptions, everything else has to be done as, as of October
2: 1. Well, in any event, Your Honor, that particular provision is a separate section of the statute from one addressing the commissioner's assignment authority. Um, It doesn't provide the sort of clear and unambiguous indication that Congress intended to prevent the commissioner after the statutory deadline from completing the task that Congress thought was important. No,
7: but if you don't read the two provisions together, if you don't read the shell clause and and the uh, the calculation clause together, you, you, you get a system which is simply incoherent. Uh, You've got a system in which assignments are being made, uh, but in fact the the combined fund uh, is being operated as as if they were not being made. And, you know, it seems to me that you've got to go the whole hog. Uh, You've simply got to say that uh, the the, the October 1 deadline has got to be read uh, together with the shell clause. And if the shell clause can be varied, then the October 1 deadline can be varied too uh... because otherwise you just get an incoherent system do you agree
2: well that is certainly how it has been applied That's what you're doing uh, it has been applied flexibly and, and um, adjustments in the applicable percentage have been made um, retroactively um, thank you reserve uh, your uh, one
4: question I, I take it it's possible if a company had received assignment of, of all of its uh, employees uh, that it could argue that it was paying too much if there wasn't the adjustment Have any companies made that argument
2: Not that I'm aware of, Your Honor.
1: Thank you, Ms. McDowell. Uh, Mr. Buscemi, we'll hear from you.
8: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. The respondents in this case are seeking a windfall because the Social Security Administration didn't complete its work on time. They should not get it. It is conceded in this case that the beneficiaries at issue were supposed to be assigned to Bel Air and Peabody. It's conceded that these respondents are not being asked to pay a penny more than Congress wanted them to pay. It's conceded that Congress wanted as many beneficiaries as possible to be assigned to particular operators. Section 9706A itself directs SSA to assign each beneficiary.
0: Counsel, would you explain to us the real-world consequences at the end of the day for the respective positions of the parties? Apparently, the minors will be covered one way or another.
8: That is correct, Your Honor. And respondents make a great deal of that, as if the only purpose of the statute was to ensure that the beneficiaries would continue to receive their health coverage. That was surely a major percent. Yes. But the financing method of the benefits was also a key component of the statute. Well that leads the next part of Justice O'Connor's question is, and I had this
4: in mind also, is the fund will always have adequate funds to pay for the unassigned minors, will they not? The plans.
8: Well the f- the combined fund will receive the plans in that sense aren't hurt. Uh, because
4: they're they're not going to
8: run out of money. The combined fund will receive funds in accordance with the provisions of the statute. The answer to Justice O'Connor's question is threefold. It is complicated. For the first three plan years, beginning February 1, 1993, and ending October 1, I'm sorry, September 30, 1995, if these beneficiaries are not assigned as they should be to Bel Air and Peabody. All of the other assigned operators will receive a greater assessment, and they will because there will be an increased number of unassigned beneficiaries during those first three plan a years. A
0: backwards-looking assessment, now, correct, for those early years. But exactly. they're not
4: complaining, as I understand it, or am I wrong about that?
8: Well, they they surely are complaining. The Apogee case, for example, in the 11th Circuit was a case that arose precisely because of that sort of supplemental after-the-fact assessment designed to take into account the fact that there was a greater number of unassigned beneficiaries in the plan. And that, in particular, arose as a result of this Court's decision in the Eastern Enterprises case. They're
4: not in this case.
8: Are there not interveners in this case? No, Your Honor. Well,
4: why? I'm
9: just as I understand it, which may show I'm wrong. The the uh, all this is about is since the, plan, the, the this receptacle, the,
8: the, the uh,
9: what are we calling it? The fund.
8: UMW combined benefit yes. fund. Yes, that's
9: financed by the coal companies too. So so that it aren't, isn't the money that we're just talking about coming from them, and, and the unassigned people go into a fund. The unassigned people go into a... What's the word? It's escaped me.
8: Your Honor, both the assigned beneficiaries and the unassigned beneficiaries are beneficiaries of the combined benefit fund. Mm -hmm. The combined benefit fund receives premiums for each beneficiary from the assigned operator if the beneficiary is assigned. If the beneficiary is not assigned, as I was starting to say in response to Justice O'Connor's question, there is a complicated system. For the first three... You've given us
7: step one, right?
8: Step one is the first three plan years. All right. During those three plan years, the unassigned beneficiaries are paid for out of the transfers from the (laughs) UMWA 1950 pension plan. Those were transfers that could not have been made but for the statute because pension benefits and the health benefits are different, and Congress intervened and said there will be $210 million moving in to the uh, combined fund from the pension plan. That money is used for unassigned beneficiaries' premiums, it's used for death benefit premiums, and for the first year and the first year only, it's used to reduce the assigned operators' assigned beneficiary premiums. So every time the number of unassigned beneficiaries goes up, a greater share of that $210 million must be used to pay for the unassigned beneficiaries. Less is left for death benefits and to defray the first-year assigned beneficiary premiums. And accordingly, a supplemental assessment is made on all assigned operators when the number of unassigned beneficiaries goes up. That's part one. Part two, beginning on October 1, 1995, Congress says, that there shall be annual transfers from the interest earned by the Abandoned Mine Land Reclamation Fund established under the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. Now, obviously, you can't transfer interest that you don't have. The interest earned by the AML Fund has been declining. Interest rates have been going down, and accordingly, the interest rates that are earned by the Fund goes down. The Fund at one time earned $80 million a year in interest. It's now projected to earn only 30 million. In fiscal 2003. So there is a limit to how much can be transferred from the AML fund. Third component if the AML fund transfer is not sufficient to pay for the beneficiaries, the unassigned beneficiaries, then there must be an unassigned beneficiary premium assessed against all assigned operators, thereby shifting the cost of these beneficiaries from these respondents to all assigned operators. Which hasn't happened yet, in fact. It has
0: not happened yet. And how much are we talking about?
8: Well, right now, we're talking if everyone nationwide affected by this case if the rule were to change Mm -hmm. and you were looking Purely prospectively, you'd have about 4,000 people, but if you go back to the beginning, yes. you'd have about 10,000 yes. people. And as Mr. Tanil's declaration, which is in the Joint dependent, shows, there was approximately $105 million that was already at stake as of the time of his declaration in 1999, and that number has been growing ever since.
1: What exactly is the interest of the trustees that you represent?
8: Your Honor, the trustees want to see this statute operate the way it's supposed to operate. The trustees... But
1: that's a fairly... uh, What is their financial or pecuniary interest?
8: The trustee... it's, It's not a financial interest. The trustees believe that the policy of the statute was to have the greatest possible amount paid for from the private sector by the employers who employed the beneficiaries, retired minors. And... The trustees have been in each of these cases arguing that the system ought to work the way Congress intended. Now on the applicable percentage, I do want to say one thing in response to Justice Scalia's uh, several questions on this, and that is the as of language in the statute is very important. Every time there is a reassignment as a result of an administrative appeal, it's made as of October 1, 1993 every time there's an initial assignment made after September 30, 1993, it's made as of October 1, 1993. They all go back to the beginning because these beneficiaries all need health care.
3: language that way. It, say, it says the applicable percentage is defined as the percentage of total assigned beneficiaries determined on the basis of assignments as of October 1, 1993. You're, you're telling me that means Assignments made later, but that you say on their face, we're making these retroactive to October 1, 1990? It it must be, Your Honor. It must be, because if there is a reassignment. It must be, because otherwise your theory doesn't work.
8: No, otherwise the statute. And
3: the other side's uh, theory of the case uh, is, is correct.
8: No, Your Honor, because when there's a reassignment after an administrative appeal, for example, the reassignment occurs in 1995 or 1996. If an administrative appeal is successful and there's a reassignment, that reassignment is as of October 1, 1993, even though the reassignment isn't made until later. That's
7: absolutely plain. So there's a a retroactive assessment?
8: Absolutely, Your Honor. All of these assignments, whether they're reassignments after administrative appeals, whether they're initial assignments during this period when the Commissioner was finishing the assignment process, they all go back to the beginning. In fact, they go back to February 1, 1993, because that's the beginning of the first plan year. I might say there are many provisions in this statute that say do something by a date certain. The trustees had to be appointed by a date certain. The $70 million transfers from the 50 pension plan had to be by a date certain. The uh, merger of the 50 benefit plan, the 74 benefit plan, into the combined fund had to be by a date certain. Yet no one would argue that if any of those dates was missed, then there was no authority at all.
6: Wouldn't and, you have to give back money if, if your side does not prevail? Then these payments have been made. The assignments that were made, the payments have been made as of October 1, 1993, and wouldn't the fund have to give those payments back?
8: That's precisely what Mr. Teneal's declaration points out, Your Honor. As of the time of his declaration, there had been approximately $105 million worth of payments by various assigned operators who had received assignments, initial assignments of beneficiaries that were made after September 30, 1993. Those amounts would have to be refunded or credited. Indeed, the respondents in this case sought just such refunds or credits. If you look at Judge Canary's opinion, for example, in the Bel Air case, in the appendix, he grants a credit to Bel Air in the amount of the payments that they made on behalf of the beneficiaries assigned to them. Well, of
3: course, they were assigned incorrect. I mean, what's so extraordinary about that? It I, just means you've been collecting money from the wrong people.
8: I was just responding
3: to I, I would hope you'd give it back. I mean, I...
8: When, when we did.
3: Thank you, Mr. Brescemi. Mr.
1: Roberts will hear from you.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The petitioner's position is that when Congress said shall before October 1, 1993, it meant may before or after October 1, 1993. That is so, according to the petitioners, because as they read the statute, Congress could not really have intended to limit the authority of the Commissioner to make assignments under the Act. But there is nothing implausible or even unusual about reading the statute to mean what it says. The consequence of not assigning a particular minor by the statutory deadline is that the minor is unassigned under the statute. The statute tells us what to do with unassigned minors. There is an elaborate backup provision, as the Solicitor General calls it, to deal with unassigned beneficiaries. First and foremost, they receive the same benefits as assigned minors.
7: Mr. Roberts, all all that, I guess, is conceded in the argument. But when when all is said and done, there seems to be uh, an an inequity uh, as among the operators. And I can understand your, I do understand, I accept your argument that at least to get the plan going initially, the objective of Congress would have been, a, as it were, a good system rather than a perfect system. What I don't see is why Congress would, want, would have wanted to make it impossible to improve on that system later by eliminating the, the inequity of an erroneous failure to assign. And it's it's that issue that makes it difficult for me to read the the shell language as being, as as they say, jurisdictional or providing a cutoff. Can you address what the reason Congress would have had for wanting to preserve that inequity?
10: Certainly. First of all, from Congress's point of view, the overriding purpose is to continue benefits. That's taken care of. Second, uh, the the, the coal miners get the same benefits whether they're assigned or unassigned. Now, uh, but the argument is this undermines the pay for your own principle. But the pay-for-your-own principle itself uh, embodies rough justice. A company that employs a minor for two years pays for all his benefits. Another company may have employed him for 25 years. That's the compromise that was agreed to, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean that this pay-for-your-own principle is some unqualified desideratum that you can assume Congress intended to pursue at all costs in perpetuity. We know that's not the case. They had a deadline, and they. Mr.
5: Roberts, it. didn't you omit one of the other statutory purposes, which was, as insofar as possible, to assign responsibility for paying the benefits to the company that had the best, the closest connection with that particular miner?
10: Yes, and we know that was, for example, not a purpose they wanted to pursue or uberales. Uh, if a company goes bankrupt, those. But it was
5: one of the major purposes, was
10: it not? It was one of the purposes. Yes, and it was one that Congress said spend a year trying to make these assignments. But then we've got to launch this fund. uh, And what is really going on here is that the Commissioner wants to do a different sort of job than Congress delegated to her. This is the sort of project, and I think this is a critical distinction from the deadlines in Pierce County and those sorts of cases. The agency could have done a reasonably good job on this project in four months, a better job in a year, maybe a nearly perfect job in five years. Congress said, we want the one-year version. Why do we want the one-year version and not the nearly perfect version? Because the miners are going to get the same benefits e- either way. Coal companies or funds established by coal companies are going to pay for them either way. But and they
5: will pay in different amounts. Different coal companies will be paying for some of the miners under your proposal rather than the government's
10: proposal. Yes, and the question the is. a
5: specific hypothetical that troubles me, let me put it right out on the table. Supposing a company had no assignments made to its prior miners until after October 1st. If I understand the system correctly, at the end of the line, if they have to finance the payments for the unassigned miners out of a, a pool contributed to by the operators,
4: that company will not have to contribute to that pool.
10: No, that's right. If it had no assignments, now Congress and,
4: and the company which had a full assignment is going to be paying more than its pro rata share.
10: And Congress and knew,
4: even though that there was, you say there's rough justice. This is making it even even more rough, and the, the companies are not paying the proportion of the uh, of the benefits that the statutory scheme requires. They're paying more.
10: And Congress knew there was some unfairness in requiring the companies to pay for unassigned beneficiaries, and it cushioned that unfairness by saying we're going to draw from this AML fund that coal operators established earlier. That will, it has to date, ensured that there is no unassigned beneficiaries. But I take it that
4: fund itself is maintained based on the, your share of fully assigned minors. The more, the, the more you're assigned, the more you have to pay to that funder. No, that, it, it's a
10: pre-existing fund that was established based, I believe, on per-ton royalties. Uh, the point is, everybody is contributing in different amounts no, to establish
5: let me just interrupt you as to just, your answer to Justice Kennedy. It's true for the first and second stages that it doesn't matter, that if you have to go to the third stage — where the unassigned miners are paid by the companies, then what he says is absolutely if right. If you
10: have to get to the third stage where there is an unassigned beneficiaries premium assessed, yes, it is done pro rata. And the Peabody Coal, for example, will have a very sizable bill if that reaches it, because they have over 4,000 assigned miners. This case is about 330 uh, miners who were assigned after October 1st. But the point is not whether you could write a, a funding mechanism that is more equitable or fair. It's a question of whether that's the one that Congress wrote.
9: What Congress, is the harm? That is to say, as you agree, I think we both agree, there are many statutes with deadlines in them. There are regulatory statutes set health regulations by such and such a date, set consumer trucking regulations, and the courts regularly say that those dates, even though they were, use words like shall, are not fixed because obviously congress wanted the regulations written even if late well here they're saying this is roughly the same thing obviously congress would have wanted this assigned in the principle of pay for your own way and nobody's hurt by doing that late well, nobody's really hurt now i want you to reply to that what what's the downside of trying to interpret this like we'd interpret other regulatory well, statutes
10: Well. Th- th- It's not like the other regulatory statutes, first of all, because it's an extraordinary grant of the authority to impose retroactive liability. The grant exists nowhere other than in the same sentence that says shall. I think that's quite different than saying EPA in two years issue clean air regulations. That's that's a different case. And Pierce County is quite different. I think the government probably has inherent authority to recover misspent funds. The harm is the same harm that comes from disregarding any kind of deadline. As I said, this is the sort of project you can spend 20 years on uh, and always come up with a more perfect assignment. Congress knew that. They knew that uh, a significant amount of work was involved. They had to go and set up an interim funding system for February to October to give the commissioner time. The commissioner came back and said, we've done it. We've completed the Is there
9: any way that you or your clients or anyone have been hurt By the delay. Oh, of course. how, How? How are you hurt specifically by the delay compared with if they'd done it all perfectly within five minutes? Imagine they'd got the same assignments on time. Now imagine they got them late. And how are you hurt? by
10: Oh, sure. Well, it's the same concern the Court noted last term in the Sigmund Coal case. The coal industry is characterized by a significant amount of transactions, mergers, acquisitions. You could be looking at a, an acquiring a coal company and, of course, given the nature of the industry, the first question you ask is, what is your liability? And they're going to say, well, it's this much. And then then the the merger, the acquisition takes place, and then you get another notice, here are, you know, 40 new miners, and now all of a sudden it's this much. That was a significant concern in Sigmund Coal, and it is significant in this instance. Mr. Roberts, on
6: the other hand, you are, in fact, your companies are paying less than they would have paid had they been billed properly on time, because you have had the use of the money in the interim, and Ms. McDowell said, you're not being charged any interest because you're paying in 19 or any adjustment for inflation, because you get to pay in 19-whatever, $97, a, a bill that was due from October 1993, and you don't get charged any interest on that.
10: I don't think interest is a significant factor just the way the interest rates have been over this time period. It certainly doesn't do much to cushion the unfairness and inequity of getting a bill retroactive. But my, my point years. is simply,
6: had you gotten that bill that timely, it would have been more costly than getting the bill later because you
10: yes. have had the use of the money in the interim. The, the in- interest I- is apparently not not charged. Um, unless,
3: you're, unless you're a company that had bought a company which... Uh, Uh, which had that switch pulled, in which case you're you're out of pocket a good deal, despite the fact that that it's less money than, than would have been charged originally. It's coming out of your pocket when you bought a coal company that you did not believe had that liability.
10: And the the key factor that such transactions play in this particular industry may well explain why you don't see any companies on this side of the case. I think it's always wise to be skeptical of fairness arguments that are raised by proxy. There are no companies complaining about, oh, we're going to end up potentially paying a higher Pro rata assessment than otherwise, because a number of reasons. Again, Congress cushioned the unfairness, they recognized it, by making the AML fund available. Second of all, this is a statute that is suffused with concepts of rough rough justice. It is not necessarily a more perfect result to pursue five years instead of one year the pay for your own principle. That does not necessarily lead to a more perfect result. It may mean that more companies who employed minors for two years are paying over all of those benefits than companies when companies who employed the same minor for 20 years don't have to pay for any. The but the there is, I mean, Congress did provide that if you think you ha-
6: that you assign people who belong to someone else, you can complain, and then there's an adjustment long after the 19. 19- and yes. We
10: think that helps us, of course, because it's an express provision for an assignment after October 1st. There are no other such provisions. But,
5: but isn't, isn't it true that with regard to the as-of as language that Justice Scalia has emphasized, isn't it true that those post-October uh, changes are made as of the October date? the reassignment provisions,
10: yes. Now, I'm not aware of a situation where it's reassigned to someone who never had any assignments. No, but at before. least the cancellation
5: of, one, of an assignment would be made as of the earlier date, even though it took later, took place later.
10: That's right. But th- the other point is that although there's a so, provision so you, for
3: you, you admit that that language doesn't really mean what it says?
10: Oh, no. It means as of October 1st. What I'm saying in the case of a reassignment, they say you can go back Uh, and and reassign it. The applicable percentage is based on the assignments a particular company had as of October 1st. If if you can
3: do it with a reassignment, why can't you do it with an initial assignment without throwing violence to the language?
10: Because there's a specific exception that allows reassignments. There's no exception for reassignments. And I would point out there is no provision that allows changes in the case of an unassigned minor. And that is what has been going on here primarily. The commissioner has been revisiting the unassigned pool. And that's why this is quite different from a lot of the other deadline cases. This is, we think the commissioner did get the job done on time.
6: But she just Congress wants to do a different So at least the Congress that made an appropriation so that the, uh, the administration could get the job done, there was a supplemental appropriation, wasn't there? Yes. And part of it was supposed to be spent to enable the administration to finish the job.
10: Yes, part of it. And the one thing Congress did not do with being told, you know, we're coming up to the deadline, they didn't change the deadline. They kept that in place. Um, uh, Look at what the
6: Solicitor.. I thought that supplemental appropriation was made after October 1st,
10: 1993. No, before, in uh, June, I believe. Uh, was asked for in February, uh, made in June or early July.
4: It's a little hard for me to accept your argument that the equitable structure of the statute is enhanced because the commissioner didn't get his work
10: done on time. Well, I think the commissioner did get the work done on time. It's just she just wants to do a more perfect job. And what I'm saying is it's reasonable for Congress to determine we don't need the more perfect job. We need a good enough job. And this job is good enough to get the fund launched. The one thing that's clear is that the way the petition Read the statute. If that had been proposed when the Coal Act was, was enacted, it never would have gotten off the ground. The idea of giving the Commissioner significant discretion on an open-ended timetable was certainly not in the cards. This was the legislative equivalent of trench warfare, parties fighting over every inch. They had the black lung model, which did give the Secretary of Labor significant discretion in allocating responsibility for that. A consequence of 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 coal mining, and they wanted nothing to do with it. That's why.
7: How do do we know this, Mr. Roberts? I I take it there's no helpful statement in legislative history saying, you know, by the way, this is you know the linchpin of the deal uh, that. With respect to unassigned minors, there will be no monkeying around after October 1st, 93.
10: I think we know it primarily. No, there's no statement like that. I think we know it from the structure of the statute, which is carefully reticulated. There is no delegation of discretion to the commissioner. The compromises in the statute are spelled out. And when you talk about revisiting fairness, keep in mind, you're looking at one particular provision, and you say, well, that looks unfair. It may be because... Another provision that's not at issue balances that out. This is, as the Court noted in Sigmund, uh, an an instance of legislative horse trading and log rolling and they're setting up a system and everybody has to pitch in some. The older pension funds pitched in some. The operators pitched in. Congress came forward with the AML fund and it moved forward. And it had to be in place by October 1st or the wheels would have fallen off. This is not a deadline of the sort you've got 120 days to issue a decision. Thank you, Your Honor.
1: Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Uh, Mr. Sutton, we'll hear from you.
11: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. I'd like to start with a legal point, and I want to start by looking at 9706A, which I'm sure you have handy. Uh, 9706A, I'm going to be reading from the Red Brief, Bel Air's Brief at A19. And... This is the assignment provision we've been discussing, and there are two things that are important about the language of 9706A. The first is, of course, that it says "shall" before October 1, 1993, and I think you understand our arguments there. But the second point,
1: which one are you reading from, Mr. Bell-air- Sutton?
11: The Air. I Red know, Ridge. but we're, we're,
1: we're a 199706A,
11: a- section A, oh, 9706A. And the the first point, you notice, is the shall before October 1, 1993 language, and, of course, we've made our point there. But the second point is that it's the same shall term that modifies other clearly mandatory jurisdictional requirements under the Act. The Commissioner would agree that she had no option of assigning these minors to non-signatories or to assigning them to people that were out of business or to not following the statutorily prescribed order of priority. It's one term, shall. As the Court made it clear in another deadline case, Mohasco, we're going to assume the same word has the same meaning throughout. And what? Uh, No, but, but,
7: I mean, that's an assumption we can't make. I mean, I think there is a clear understanding that when someone is given an either-or choice, shall maybe mean one thing. When one is given a timing or a deadline choice, it may mean something else. The statute is addressing different issues, and the same verb may well have different meanings in, in the different contexts.
11: Well, Your Honor, I'm not aware of a case from this Court that has said one word in one sentence can have different meanings. It the doesn't have statute. different
9: meanings. as has the same meaning, but, in fact, it doesn't tell you what happens if you don't do it. But All right? So but they didn't do it. Now what? If you don't do what it says? Then what? The pet- and there, the statute is silent.
11: And, point- and
4: furthermore, the argument is that the shall merely enhances and makes more meaningful the other shalls. I mean, that's the. Argument.
11: Well, well, there's just one shall, and the petitioners would agree I- that there's a clear consequence if they had not assigned to a signatory operator. Why isn't there the same mandatory Because it's cons- a different I
9: mean, look. It's not a linguistic point. The point is what happens if you don't do it. What you shall do, and there, the consequence in the case you've said. You couldn't go back you're absolutely right and now our question is what's the consequence here
11: well the consequence here and that's what makes this an easy case is the fact that unlike pierce county the statute did provide a consequence it did provide a fail safe safety net for all miners
7: it it had a default provision in effect it says if there hasn't been an assignment to an operator this is where the person goes for purposes of this tripart tripartite calculation Uh, But the fact that there may be a default provision in the case of of inaction, I I don't think necessarily is is equivalent to saying that there is a provision for all time about what shall happen. It's just that their immediate object was there had to be a grouping of these miners as of October 1, or there would have been no way to calculate the the, the sources of the the various assessments to, to pay for it. But that all that does is say, okay, you've got a default in, in place default position uh, provision in place so that you know what to do as of October one, but it doesn't answer the, the, the question here.
11: But the proof, your Honor, that this was not that mysterious in terms of language is the fact that the commissioner had no problem doing what, just what we say the statute required. As of October 1, 1993, she ju- did just what Congress said she should do, which is to divide the world of minors into two parts, assigned or unassigned. After October 1, 1993, and keep in mind this was a statutory beginning, not a well, If she a could have done that, if she
7: had done absolutely nothing at all, uh, if, if, if she had done zero on, on October 1st, the, the default provision would have, would have come into play and there would have been a result of October 1st. And, and I assume you would not take the position there that a, a total default by the government of any action at all uh, would, would re- be
11: required to go unremedied for all time. Well, no, of course, the statute wouldn't have worked, and that's no. It, There's no doubt, and it would have required a congressional but fix. It but there would the have been a result as of October 1st. But the point I'm making is there were only 5,000 out of these 80,000 minors that they ran out of time on. As of October 1st, what did they do with these miners? They put them in the unassigned pool. The statute has very specific requirements for yes, transferring.
5: but the sub st- wasn't created just for that purpose. It was also <laughs> created to take care of people who couldn't be hooked up with any particular company.
11: But to use Justice Souter's words, all default provisions cover everything. It would be an odd safety net that said But you would, would agree in, that the, out. the
5: default position was not just to take care of the timing problem. No, of
11: course not. But, but yeah, the, universe, the, the
4: universe of assigned and unassigned was, uh, I don't think, intended by Congress uh, to include people that the Commissioner didn't get around to.
11: Well, there's one thing that Congress clearly appreciated, and let's make sure I I make this clear. Of the 10,000 people that have been reassigned, i.e., original assignments after the date, 7,500 are folks that the Commissioner originally did, quote, designate in the unassigned pool. They reviewed the records, they looked at them, they said we can't find anyone to whom they belong, they're going to the unassigned pool. Now, the proof that Congress contemplated that possibility is exactly the administrative review provisions we've been talking about. What were they about? Fact error, what, And so why? they were aware of Can
4: you give me that number again? What is the percentage of the unassigned we're talking about that well, were initially determined properly to be unassigned for other criteria?
11: Uh, 20,000 were initially decided. If you look at the Heron affidavit at JA 179 to 184, it specifically says that 20,000 were initially designated unassigned. And this proves, Mr. Roberts' point, that what's going on here is not a missed deadline case. They met the deadline. What's going on is they decided to reinvent the task.
4: So we're talking about 20,000 and what's the total universe of, that we're talking about here of unassigned? 80,
11: oh, well, they started with 80,000 altogether. and I'm making the point that 20,000 were initially designated unassigned. Out of that 20,000, 7,500 later they decided we can do a better job with that. And our me, point, our point is I mean, there's a cost-benefit analysis here. Congress could have said, Commissioner of Social Security, you can keep doing this into perpetuity until you get the job just right. They right, didn't so they're, say they're, that. So their
9: reassignments cost your clients money. I understand that. Uh, what I don't quite understand is it was Mr. Roberts' point, which he mentioned, if they're right in the case, uh, I mean, if you're, if, if, if you're right in the case, then other companies should have had to pay more. Isn't that right, to balance what you paid by way of less? But,
11: but Your Honor, I mean, that's No, and why aren't they on the other side of the case? I'm genuinely puzzled about that. Well, that's that. an important question, but yeah. if, uh, ultimately it's robbing Peter to pay Peter. Uh, all of these funds at the end of the day came from coal companies. I,
9: yes, that's my understanding. So I would appreciate why they aren't... I mean, Mr. Roberts brought that up, and, I, and because I'm of curious the why they're not here.
11: the cushion, Your Honor, the cushion. This a, a critical part of the compromise that led to the enactment of the act was a cushion of funds to provide for the benefits of unassigned beneficiaries. That cushion has been sufficient. So there's there's not been a concern yet for this pro-rata. But it isn't
5: assumed it will always be sufficient, is it? It's been sufficient up to now. But isn't it assumed that in time they will have to resort to a a company-financed Pool of money to pay for the unassigned
11: miners. Your Honor, the government all the time relies on much less reliable proxies than this one. Keep in mind that 93 to 94 percent of these miners' records were reviewed. The risk that somehow this pro rata unassigned beneficiary premium is going to awkwardly hurt one company, I think, is fanciful. I can't imagine. How that could happen, well, given the do you the numbers, not
5: agree, I'm not, I'm not sure you're responding to my question, do you not agree that there is a significant possibility, even a likelihood, that you'll reach the third stage of financing for the
11: unassigned pool? I, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is that you, these AML transfers have done the job. Since 1995, they have done the job. And this is a declining population. Where would but that money go? Assume there
5: is a significant... But they risk. haven't eliminated the unassigned pool.
11: No, they haven't. Of course not. And the question is, who who should pay for those? (laughs) And the rough justice calculation that the Congress made is we're going to do it on a pro-rata basis. If I could just step back for one second, I think this, I hope, puts the 1992 decision in context. From 1946 forward, they paid for these benefits in two ways. One was pay for your own, the employer paid for his or her employee, and the second one was pay as a group. They've been doing that through... Since 1946, that's what the AML tax does. That's an awful the secretary accomplish.
6: had gotten around to only half instead of what it was. Right. Uh, the, you're saying she couldn't. She she should not have tried to make it perfect. It was good enough for government work. But suppose it was only. She she was much slower and she only
11: did say one third. Right. Yeah, there, there's, there's, I'm sorry. There's clearly some point at which the wheels of the statute would fall off. But I think, from the court's perspective of construing what the statute means, it's appropriate to assume the commissioner is going to act in good faith. She did act in good faith. When you faith. say it would she fall off, get, do you mean
6: that in that event, if she had been slower than she was, then she would have been permitted? to make assignments after the deadline.
11: No, Your Honor, I don't mean to be saying that. The point I'm making is that... Well, what
6: would have happened? Let's say she did only one-third of the job and you had this large pool of unassigned people.
11: Well, the bigger problem would have been the assigned minors, and they wouldn't have had enough money to pay for them. When I say the wheels fall off the statute, if they didn't get this job done by October 1st, they've got a very serious problem on their hands because the statutory beginning that starts on that date is they began sending out these premium requirements. The first ones went out on October 22, 1993. And if they hadn't done a sufficient number, you wouldn't have enough money to pay for their benefits. I thought the
6: first three years, they got the money from the pension fund.
11: Those were used primarily for unassigned. They were used some to help with assigned, but most were used to pay for unassigned benefits. So that's the point I'm making there. I'd like to make a point about Pierce County that I think is helpful in thinking about deadline cases in general. Here's why we're not saying that when a statute says you must complete this FOIA request in 20 days, our our case would control it. In Pierce County, as in that situation, these governmental agencies have pre-existing general grants of authority to do these acts, i.e. go get misspent federal funds. There are general statutes. There was one in Pierce County. If you look at page 257 of Pierce County, the plaintiff conceded there was otherwise jurisdiction to get this money here. And, and so what Pierce County means is we're not going to say there's a repeal by implication of that general grant of authority merely because we now have another statute that says do it quickly, get it done. That's not this case. 9706A is the only provision either petitioner has pointed to that gives you this grant of authority. So the grant comes with,
5: with a limit. With one more question, if I may. Uh, in, in response to the as-of argument that Justice Glee identified, Mr. Buscemi gave a a list of a whole bunch of things that are as of October 1st. What would be your response to his his list of as of things that really happened later than that October date?
11: There are express exceptions to the October 1st deadline, and under the, this court's decision in Sigmund, you follow the Russello rule. They knew about the possibility. Express
5: exception again—the like appointment date of the trustees and so forth. If oh, I'm
11: sorry. The other shalls. I'm sorry. The other shall. I, I'm sorry. Thank you. The other shalls throughout the statute. You've got two different issues there. One of them is that they apply, there's no contingency plan if you miss. Here we've got a contingency plan. That's one inference. The second is they all regulate private entities. This goes back to the point I just made about Pierce County. If a private entity is told do something by this date, they don't do it. A court clearly has authority to say, we said do it by this date, do it. They had, had, you don't have an authority problem with a private entity. They can do what they want. With a government, however, and particularly when it comes to these extraordinary retroactive assignments of liability, the commissioner is not born with that authority. It's not inappropriate to ask the government to turn square corners in that kind of a setting, as opposed to a setting where they're merely exercising a general power to get misspent federal funds for a FOIA request.
3: Certainly, I thought that, uh, or I, I may, maybe I just hoped uh, that uh, uh, Justice Stevens was was asking about why it is that the the crucial language determined on the basis of assignments as of October 1, 1993, is in fact not so crucial that, that as Mr. Buscemi said, there are other instances in which um, something was not determined before October 1, 1993, but nonetheless it is deemed to have been determined before
11: October 1, 1993. By the statute. It says that if, they go, if a company goes, out of ba- it goes into bankruptcy, we're going to alter the applicable percentage as of October 1, 1993, because they went into bankruptcy. If there's a reassignment, it goes back to October 1.
3: Well, does the statute say it goes back to October 1? Does the statute say the reassignment shall be deemed to have been made no. as of October 1?
11: Let's, let's go back here, right here. You've got in the provision you're talking about 9704f, the applicable percentage. It has the general rule. Where is that? What page? Uh, A-13 of the appendix. Okay. The general rule is stated in 9704F, and then you have the adjustments to the general rule. And then right. it says, look at number two, by making the following changes to the assignments as of October 1, 1993. They stuck with it. I mean, they understood what was going on, and that's, that's what's so inappropriate here. Okay. I mean, Justice Ginsburg, you made the point that there's no interest running on this, but keep in mind, We don't get interest when they make mistakes on our assignments. That's a wash, right? I mean, if they mistakenly assign someone to us, we don't get interest there. But critic, thank you, Your Honor.
1: Thank you, Mr. Sutton. Ms. McDowell, you have one minute remaining.
2: Justice Breyer asked why there weren't coal companies on our side of the courtroom. It's because we, that is the federal government, has been paying through the AML fund for the benefits for the last few years. It appears that in the next few years, that interest is going to run out. Um, and at that point uh, there will be coal operators who will be bearing a larger burden through the unassigned beneficiaries premium. What would
6: the interest be used for if it weren't being used to make up? The-
2: it would be used for correcting the uh, severe health and safety problems caused by abandoned mines uh, from the period before 1977. Uh, the suggestion was made that uh, coal operators were being uh, denied um, certainty in. Uh, making transactions if uh, that had actually been a concern. There is a remedy provided by the Administrative Procedure Act, Section 706.1, uh, an action for administrative um, action unreasonably delayed. Uh, a co-operator conceivably could have brought an action but under they that statute. They
6: answered that by saying, how did we know there was going to be, we didn't know there was going to be anything we assigned to us. They
2: received initial assignments um, For the first time in October 1993, that was at a time when no reassignments were being made through the administrative review process. It therefore um, should have occurred to them that these were post-October 1st, 1993 assignments. In terms of there having been a political compromise that uh, the October 1st, 1993 date would uh, have jurisdictional effect, in light of uh, Pierce County and Montavo Murillo, uh, no such compromise could be assumed.
1: Thank you, Ms. McDowell. The case is submitted.
2: The Honorable Court is now adjourned until
0: tomorrow at 10 o'clock.